Friends, please keep Acts chapter 2 open. We'll be looking at it quite closely tonight and thinking about how uh, this event 2,000 years ago impacts us today. How about I pray to get started? Heavenly Father and gracious God, we uh, thank you and praise you that you have not left us alone in the dark, but that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And so as we look at your word more closely, we pray that you would give us your spirit so we may understand what you're saying to us tonight and how to live it out so that we may continue to be on Jesus' mission together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want to start tonight by telling you three stories. First is a woman who grew up going to kids church at OEC in youth group. Through the Bible talks, God grew her and her faith. She realized that she needed to own her faith for herself. And with the help of her youth leaders, she stood out, she stepped out in faith and took those promises on for herself. Second, second story, Guy moved to our church from the Central Coast. He became a Christian in his youth group at his home church. But when he moved to Orange and he started going to CSU, Through the teaching at our church, he was challenged to grow in his faith, to take it more seriously. He's now a leader in our church, and he tells other people about Jesus. Third story, young woman born in Orange, but not to a Christian family. Uh, One of her friends invited her along to OEC. She heard the gospel and felt the love of Jesus through the people at church. And she decided she needed to make the change. She needed to put her faith in Jesus and her life was transformed. She's still at our church. She keeps inviting other people to church and she won't take no for an answer. Now, you're probably trying to figure out who those people are. I've tried to leave it obviously vague so they can be um, anonymous, uh, but that's not my point. My question is this. What's the common thread with these three stories and these three people? Three very different people who God, through his word and by his spirit, worked in powerfully to bring them to faith and to grow them in Jesus Christ. Uh, And it happened within a church that was devoted to the mission of Jesus. That is, Anything and everything good about OEC is the work of God. But humanly speaking, these lives were transformed because men and women were devoted. Devoted to the word, devoted to each other, and they were devoted to the mission of Jesus. That's what we encounter when we read Acts chapter 2 tonight. Did you pick it up? Acts chapter 2, um, verse 42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Here's a question. What's the opposite of being devoted? It's indifference. Indifference is an ugly word, isn't it? Indifference is when you know something needs to happen, but you neglect it. Indifference is how our year 11 students feel about the HSC. You know, it's going to happen, but who really cares? Indifference is how people feel about road rules and roundabouts in orange, right? They exist, but they don't really care about it. If being devoted to 
God's word and one another is how we continue to be on Jesus' mission together as a church. Friends, can I ask you, will you be devoted to this mission or will you be indifferent to it? That's the big question I want to ask tonight. Will you be devoted to the mission of Jesus or will you be indifferent? Uh, In the first week, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, looking at the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. And in the first week, we saw that Jesus' mission continues here on earth and calls us to play a part in this mission. Last week, we looked at the Spirit, and we saw that the mission of Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that breaks down the barriers in us and in others so the gospel can transform lives. And this week, the, uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter preaches on the Lordship of Jesus, and we get a picture of the Spirit-filled church. Uh, and so three points for us tonight, the truth of Jesus the community of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. Now, just a reminder, Peter is preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So people from all around the Roman Empire have come to uh, worship God at his temple in Jerusalem, and a crowd have formed because they've heard people declaring the magnificent acts of God in their own language. We looked at the first half of Peter's sermon last week, and now this is the second half as Peter preaches about who Jesus truly is. So if you've got your Bibles there, have a look at verse 22 with me. Peter says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him. Just as you yourself know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. What's really interesting is that when Peter talks about the identity of Jesus, he doesn't start with the Gospels. He emphasizes God's sovereign hand to show that God's activity through Jesus stands at the center of God's eternal plan. You see, the danger is for us to think that as history unfolds, that it's this kind of cooperative project between God and man. You know, that as man does stuff on earth, God is watching TV with his feet up, just waiting to see how our actions shape history, and then he will react to what we have done. But the Bible gives us a bigger and better picture of history. Verse 23 that Jesus was delivered by God the Father according to his preordained plan. You see, on one hand, the lawless men who crucified Jesus are still guilty for their sin. But on the other, God had always planned to deliver up his son to pay for our sins, in verse 24, to raise him from the dead. God didn't send Jesus in order to see how sinful creatures will respond to him, but to fulfill his eternal plans and purposes for this world. And to prove his point, Peter gives us two pieces of evidence from the Psalms. The first is in Psalm 16. Uh, Have a look at verse 30 with me. This is speaking about David, King David. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, 
and in his flesh did not experience decay. So Peter, in verses 25 to 28, quotes Psalm 16. It's this beautiful prayer by King David, asking God to not abandon him in death, but to preserve his life. And Peter says, David, he is dead and buried. You can go and see his body in the tomb, which means David must not have been speaking about only himself. He must have been speaking about another person. And verse 30, God has already promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants will rule on his throne forever. And so this is Peter's point, verse 31. David, the greatest king of Israel, was looking forward to another king, another king who would live forever, the resurrected Messiah. Sound familiar? Okay, keep it in the back of your mind. Second piece of evidence is Psalm 110. Have a look at verse 34 with me. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an, em- <laughs> an enemy, your, make your enemies your footstools. Uh, psalm 110 is a very common psalm in the New Testament, but it's also confusing. It's confusing because of the repetition of the word Lord. Did you notice that? You see, when David originally wrote this prayer, he was using two different names for Lord, but they're both translated as Lord here in our English Bibles. So first Lord in the line refers to Yahweh, the Lord God, and the second Lord refers to a master or ruler. So the greatest king of Israel is actually looking to a superior king, one that would not just sit on Israel's throne, but would sit on Yahweh's throne and rule from heaven. So can you see what Peter is saying? He's saying, join the dots, friends. If you find a resurrected king and he has ascended to the right hand of God, then you will find God's king. Verse 36, he summarizes his whole sermon. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter tells this crowd the truth about who Jesus is. That in the the pouring out of the Spirit, in the resurrection of the dead, in the ascension of Jesus, Jesus is the ruler of heaven and earth and he is the risen Lord. And so convicted, this crowd ask, in verse 30, they ask, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing, isn't it? They get it right. The crowd They ask Peter, what should we do with all this great news that you've told us? And Peter tells the crowd how to rightly respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ. First, they are to repent. They are to apologise for their sin and turn away from it. See, repentance is not simply feeling sorry. It's not simply regret. True repentance is turning around with a spirit-driven hatred of sin. A spirit-empowered fight against temptation accompanies repentance and a spirit-driven determination to obey the risen Lord Jesus. 
This is what true repentance looks like. Second, alongside repentance, Peter calls the crowd to be baptised. Here we go. Open a can of worms. Get ready. Uh, Baptism is a public step in Christian discipleship. Colossians 2 says it's a sign based on the promises of God. It points to our unity with Christ and our forgiveness and washing of sin. So it's a sign. It's not required for salvation. Let's get that clear here. Peter is not saying you need to repent and be baptized to be saved, but rather it's a sign of your salvation, an outward sign of an inward reality. It's funny um, because I I think we sometimes maybe have a, a low view of baptism. Isn't it interesting that as soon as these people turn to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and have faith, Peter says, repent and be baptised. That's because this is a public sign that plays a key role in our discipleship. And to understand that a bit clearly, I think you'd probably have to ask a brother or sister in Christ who lives in a country where having public faith risks it all. Uh, I've got a, a friend called Rebecca who became a Christian in communist China. Uh, a key moment in her faith and her walk with Jesus, her discipleship, was getting baptised because that was the moment when she publicly declared her faith and risked it all. Friends, maybe we have something to learn from our Chinese brothers and sisters in Christ about public faith. Because often we ask the question, if I believe in Jesus, then why should I be baptised? Maybe a better question is, if I believe in Jesus, then why shouldn't I be baptised? I'll leave that one with you. Feel free to send me an email (laughs) or chat to me over supper. You see, if Jesus is the risen Lord, if his resurrection and ascension is the fulfilment of God's eternal plan, that means that Jesus is the only lifeline God gives humanity. Jesus is the only lifeline thrown to humanity because it's the only way to be saved. Jesus' death is the one and only sacrifice that pays for our sin. Jesus' resurrection is the proof that sin and death have been defeated. And Jesus' ascension shows us that now there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Remember Acts 2.21? That was cut out of the Bible reading, which should have been cut out of the Bible reading. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's saved by the risen Lord Jesus. And what happens? What happens when Peter preaches to this crowd of thousands of people? Verse 37. When they heard... Sorry, uh, sorry, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and at that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Only one chapter ago, we were 120 disciples huddled together with this great and awesome plan that Jesus had given them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now they've wit- Peter, in witnessing to the resurrected Jesus in Jerusalem, God has transformed 3,000 lives. We've now got 3,120 people who belong to Jesus. But what's the fruit of God saving his people? Like, what actually happens after this? Well, the fruit of God saving these people is a new community 
a new community in Jesus. Uh, if you've got your Bible there, have a look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. See, this newly regenerated, repented and baptised saints gather together in the temple. The temple was the centre of God's purposes being fulfilled on earth. So I take it, they continue to meet in the temple because this new community in Jesus Christ is how God will fulfill his purposes on earth going forward. And notice it's a community that's marked by devotion, not compulsion. As people who belong to Jesus, their hearts have been changed by the Spirit, so they desire to do these things. But I've got a question for you. And it's a turn to the person next to you kind of question, okay? Ready? Turn to the person next to you and ask them, as you read verses 42 to 47, what is the thing, that's one thing, what is the thing that you find most attractive? I'll give you a minute. Turn to the person next to you, ask them, what's the thing you find most attractive in verses 42 to 47 about this new community? Okay, that's your one minute. Please uh, keep those conversations going over supper tonight. I take it that the things that we value most in this list come about because of our journey to faith or the things that have impacted us most as a Christian, whether it's devotion to the apostles' teaching or to fellowship, for caring for people, for making sure that no one was in need. You see, friends, we all have biases. We all have expectations when we come to church. It's part of our human nature. And as rugged 21st century individualists, we like to ask, what do I think should happen at church? Uh, we might even quote Acts chapter 2 and, and, and say that, well, we need to return to this kind of church because we aren't really a spirit-filled church unless we see these things happening. I think a better question than what I think should happen at church a better question is, what does Jesus think should happen at church? What does this spirit-filled community actually look like? And I think it looks like three things. So verse, first one, in verse 42, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Notice that they meet in the temple publicly, but they didn't have priests. You see, they didn't need priests because they had the apostles, authoritative eyewitnesses of Jesus. It was a spirit-filled church and they weren't forced to listen. No, as the Spirit gripped their hearts, it gave them a hunger to receive their teaching and submit to it. 
You see, Jesus wants to grow the people of his church. And so he gives them the eyewitnesses to teach them the truth. And he gives them the spirit so they may grow in the knowledge and love of God. So that's the first thing, devoted to the apostles' teachings. Second, they're devoted to fellowship. It was a spirit-filled church because they devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship comes from the original word koinonia, which uh, if you've read Philippians 1, this is how Paul describes partnership while Paul is in prison and he shares the ministry of the Philippians. But it's also how um, Peter, in 2 Peter 1, speaks about the relationship within the Trinity. So it's a devotion to one another, that is, it's sharing material wealth, ministry, even suffering, but it comes from a relationship they have with one another, which means, verse 44, they held everything in common. Verse 45, no one was in need. Verse 46, they met every single day. You see, their unity in Christ means that they're no longer independent believers. They're a family, a family who are interdependent, who rely on one another for their needs, and a a family that is radically generous to one another. They're generous in their time and their talents and their treasures. Notice they're not making sacrifices in the temple, no. They're devoted to one another as living sacrifices, Romans 12 verse 1. So that's the second thing, is their fellowship they're devoted to. Third is their worship, that is, breaking of bread and prayer. Their fellowship was expressed not only for caring for one another, but also in corporate worship too. Uh, Together they met as a big, large group, and then privately in one another's houses. Publicly so people could hear the good news. Privately, I assume, so they could care for one another and grow in love for one another. They brought their requests to God because, uh, through prayer because through the cross they could be assured that God would listen to their prayers. And so they devoted themselves to worshipping God. They even broke bread. Uh, I think you can, uh, there's a big discussion about what this means. Is it just sharing a meal or is it taking the Lord's Supper? Um, uh, you can have a chat about that over supper and tell me what you think. But tonight we will be sharing the Lord's Supper. So... You can see what that means. Uh, So Jesus, a new community, a spirit-filled community, are devoted to teaching, caring for one another, and their worship. And what's the fruit of this new community? Verse 47, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So our 120 people grow to 3,120 and continue to grow. But it's nothing that they are doing in and of themselves, but it is God by his spirit who is working through them. As the the risen Lord Jesus continues to work on earth through them and through their devotion. That is, the key thing here is their devotion. How can you tell if they are devoted to one another? Well, I guess the question is, what's the difference between going to church and a service station? Okay, you're going to say, look, Chris, there's a lot of things that's different. And you were right. Yes, well done. Good job you're staying awake. Uh, Some people would say there's not a lot of difference between the petrol station and church. That is, you go to church to get your spiritual tank filled, and then you drive off for another week living for Jesus. Uh, 
And in the same way, you don't need to relate to anyone at the servo. It doesn't matter who you talk to. You just go in, your people serve you, and then you go home. And that's the way our individualistic consumer culture has taught us to think about church. That church is about me and my needs. But a spiritual-filled church is so much better. A spirit-filled church is one that is devoted and committed to one another. Not out of compulsion, but out of love. Not because they have to, because they have the opportunity and privilege to do it. And that it is a joy to do it. That is, they are devoted to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, and to the worship of God. And as they do this, they continue to be on Jesus' mission together. But what about us? How do we continue to be on mission together as Jesus? What's interesting is that all the things in verses 42 to 47 are some, sorry, 42 to 46 are somewhat the interior life of the church. They don't tell us anything about their compassionate outreach of the church. You see, if we were to have just 42 to 46, this would be a very lopsided view of the church. It would be all about my needs and what I can meet. It will be the service station view of the church, not the spirit-filled church that continues to be on Jesus' mission. So how do we go from being a, uh, a, servo, a servo church, if you like, to continue being on Jesus' mission? Well, I take it we continue to do the things that they did. That is... We are devoted to the word of God. We no longer have the living apostles, but we have their testimony in God's word. And so every week we must be devoted to sharing the word of God with one another. We're to be devoted to each other, making sure that each of us are without need. And also we're to be devoted in worship of God through prayer, uh, through meeting to one another and singing his praises. Uh, you know, I'm currently reading a book by a guy called Leslie Newbring. Uh, Leslie Newbring is a missionary uh, who went to India around 1950 and served in a very non-Christian society, as you can imagine, sharing the gospel for over 30 years. Amazing. Uh, and just this remarkable thing, at the end of 30 years, they packed up everything they owned in one suitcase and sold everything and then returned to England by bus okay so that was six not not sorry buses not bus buses so six months of travel from india to england via a number of lots and lots of buses when he returned to england 30 years after he left he discovered that the western church now found itself in a non-christian society as well just like he'd been at in india but the problem was that it hadn't adapted to the new situation. The church still ran its mission. Its, uh, it hadn't adapted to its new situation. That is, it was indifferent to the mission of Jesus. The church still ran its ministries, assuming that a stream of Christianized or traditional or moral people would simply just show up at church. Some churches carried out evangelism or one-to-one, but the church in the West didn't have the mission of Jesus at, his heart, at its heart. Leslie says that it broke his heart. 
They failed to adapt its worship, its discipleship, its community, even how they spoke in church on a Sunday. And they failed to engage with the non-Christian society around it. They were, Leslie reflects that they were a group of people who were indifferent to the mission of Jesus. So how do we continue to be on Jesus' mission together? You know, at OEC, we have our vision is to bring the gospel to Orange and beyond. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking the question, what does it look like for us at Church at 6.30 to fill this room, to have 250 people meeting together every Sunday night? Well, I take it we need to be a devoted community, a spirit-filled community, a missional community that keeps on being on Jesus' mission together and one that does it actively and thoughtfully um, as we continue to pursue Jesus. That is, that we would be actively devoted to God's word, that we would be actively devoted to loving one another, that we'd be actively devoted to God in prayer and not look in on ourselves, not trust that God would continue to send us moral or Christian people from Sydney every year, but that we would continue to take the gospel to the people living in Orange and the people who need to hear it so they can hear the good news of Jesus, turn and be saved. How about I pray that God would continue to do that for us at church at 6.30. Heavenly Father and gracious God, uh, we thank you for the picture of this, um, of this new spirit-filled community that you give us in the book of Acts. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for their devotion, Lord their devotion to your word, to one another, and to worship. And so, Lord, help us not to idolise another church or another picture of church, but by your Spirit, transform our hearts so that we would desire to do these things as well, so that we would be devoted to your word on a Sunday and during the week, so that we would sacrificially care for one another's needs, and that we would be devoted to worship and prayer to you. Help us to be outward focused so we can keep taking your good news to Orange and beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.